This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. We are hunters, anglers, riders, and sometimes chefs. Our passion for the outdoor lifestyle motivated the foundation of Harvesting Nature, which serves as a media outlet built to inspire and educate the outdoor expert and novice alike. Our podcast focuses on the technical side of cooking wild fish and game, while also incorporating adventures and lessons learned from our pursuit of wild meat. Join us on our journey of harvesting nature. Hey everyone, welcome to the uh, Harvesting Nature Wild Fish and Game podcast. We've got uh, episode 13 uh, for you today. And uh, we're excited to have uh, another special guest. Special guest, also a long-term uh, member of the Harvest in Nature crew. I'll go ahead and let him introduce himself. Uh, hey, everyone. I'm Ara Zeta. I'm a chef from Los Angeles, California. I'm an avid bow hunter. I uh, recently wrote a cookbook called Lavash. And uh, I'm just happy to be here on the show. Yeah, man. We're happy to have you. Hey, you guys. It's Dustin. Welcome back. This this is Corey. This is Corey, managing editor of Harvest in Nature. Excited to talk to Ara. Really excited. This is like the first time. So the cool thing about this podcast is now we're getting to jump around and talk to everybody that's been involved in Harvest in Nature, you know, since the beginning. And it's it. cool because we we've gotten to know each other through writing and through emails and social media, but actually sitting down and like face-to-face conversations have been like few and far between and i enjoy it because i get to learn more about you more about your story i mean we had uh justin lee on last and uh that was a a, an excellent podcast because you know we learned about justin's history and just sort of dug into uh, a lot of what gets him going and and his adventures um and it, it was it was a really fun thing so i'm excited to uh to sort of do the same here with you and you know, you having your culinary background already piques my interest even more because we can talk <laughs> shop a little further, which is yeah. Awesome. 
I love it. Yeah, no, it's, this is awesome. We've communicated so much through emails the past uh, several years. So it's kind of cool seeing each other face to face and actually kind of putting the voices to the names I see on my screen. Yeah. <laughs> Makes it cool. So I guess kind of first off, what I wanted to talk about uh, is a little bit of your, your professional culinary career because I'm, I'm really curious, like the beginnings of that, what got you into it, and then sort of how you transition that over into hunting and fishing and, and preparing really delicious wild game. So um, I started cooking when I was around five years old, and I kind of gravitated towards the kitchen mainly because I just wanted to play with knives. So I would just, I, I wanted to play with the knives. I thought I was like Peter Pan. I wanted to flip the knife around. And my, the only way my mom would let me into the kitchen was if I was actually cutting something and doing some kind of work. Uh, so I kind of gravitated that way. I fell into the family business, which wasn't cooking. And it was printing, actually. And I hated coming, going to work, coming home from work. Everything was about business. And I found myself in the kitchen always as kind of like a stress reliever. So I eventually said, you know, I'm not going to be with the family business anymore. I'm going to go to culinary school and this is what I'm going to do. And it was kind of wasn't taken very well with my family. Uh, you know, the cooking world isn't very glamorous, but I ended up going to uh, French culinary school. I went to Le Cordon Bleu uh, and uh, it kind of took me through a whirlwind of different things. And it, I kind of, what I, what I feel like culinary school does is it kind of sparks your interest in cooking. It doesn't necessarily guide you in the right direction, but it puts you in the element to get to where you want to be if you do enough work. And at a culinary school, I bounced around doing a lot of different things. Uh, I got into recipe development as well as a lot of uh, food TV, food styling, uh, a lot of things like that. And... It took me on a crazy journey. I worked in restaurants. I worked, I worked on the line. I worked in a lot of different things, but I mainly fell into recipe development, product development, and um, doing a lot of food TV things. Those, those kind of where my passion and, and where I really saw myself like excel, I would say. And that translated into hunting great because not only do I know how to do everything when it's given to me properly, like a, from a butcher. But as I, as I started hunting big game and as I started really, you know, putting myself out there, I found myself really diving headfirst into butchering. And then it was, it was literally butchering and then prepping and then packaging and then taking it all the way through all the steps. And I like, I kind of, I, I always say from field to plate or everybody says from field to plate, I kind of say from like field to toilet. Like I'm like full circle. <laughs> <laughs> I like, I like to go all the way through. Right. So were, <laughs> were you uh, were you in, intimidated at all when you when you kind of sit down with your first big uh, big job of processing your own wild game? No, honestly, the the so before I went out before I went out and uh, before I hunt anything, I kind of do all the research. I'm kind of like one of those people that dives into things, and I need to know every single detail about every yeah. part of it before I can actually do it or before I start doing it. And then I just want to excel at it. I, I just want to learn as much as possible. So like first deer hunt I ever went on, I would sit and watch deer videos and then not only how to hunt them and how to, how to track them, but then how to fabricate them and how to, how to gut them and field dress them. And what do you do in certain situations? So when I first got my hands into my first deer, I felt like I was prepared and ready. 
and I already obviously had some sort of butchering, butchering skills from, you know, the, the chefing stuff. So, I mean, the only intimidation was just kind of diving your hands into some warm lungs, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, other than that, it was, I, I kind of felt like I was right at home. That's good. I, I know a lot of people struggle with that, especially like you look at the amount of work and stuff people put in to, to go out and harvest their first animal. And it, it depends too, like on the the mentors or if they're doing it solo or kind of what, what their experience levels are and even what their comfort levels are. I, I always find it an interesting question because I mean, even now I, I sometimes I'm still like, I don't, I don't want to go about it the wrong way because you risk yeah, messing up hour, the meat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, hours, hours, and days and years worth of thought and work, and you're like, uh, I, you know, yeah. am I going to mess this up? But I, mean, I'm I with think, you. to be fair though, there's going to be the the there's going to be another side, right? There's going to be people who want clean, lean meat, right? And and they're ready to go out and hunt, but then what? You have this huge animal. So you're either going to pay someone to process it or you're going to try. So what I tried doing, I, I tried learning, right? Like, like yeah. you, you had this, this culinary gift and, and you're going on and the, then you bring it into cleaner meat. I, yeah. I didn't know what to do. So I'm, I'm like, like you were watching movies about deer, this and that. I was watching movies about butchering and, and YouTube videos and, and trying to teach myself how to, to keep as much meat as possible so that I could take everything that I've harvested back from my family. Oh yeah, um, and, 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 and now and learning from there, right? And now I'm, now Dustin's discovered deer tongue, so that's his yeah, new uh, like that's that. his new project. I love but it. Ever since I've been working with Justin, it's like okay, well, how can I implement a little bit of wild boar or, or this other meat that I have or venison, and we're we're starting yeah. to substitute it out for things, and it's 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 amazing. Yeah, I dove yeah. I dove into uh, boar hunting first. I had a bunch of friends that were all boar hunters, uh, and that was actually my first big game. And I, I mean, I'm a huge, you know, pig fan. So I'm like all about it. And it's, it's, it's slight, it's, it is different. It's different than, you know, the, the, the feral hogs that we have, you know, you buy from the store. Uh, so the, the, the meat itself was a little bit different to get used to, but, but fabricating it, I, I fell in love with it to the point where we would go out and when we'd go out with like 10 guys on these weekend trips and we'd come back with like six hogs and they would send it to this local butcher that they had, they started just dropping them off at my house. So they'd be like, hey. That's good practice. Yeah. They'd be like, hey, do you want to just fab this down? And at least I would just plop the whole thing. I'd pop pig after pig on my island in the middle of my kitchen and just chop them up. I was having a blast. So it got me. It got me good at doing that. I heard today somebody uh, was telling. I don't know if it was true or not, but is there like did they announce a meat shortage today? I think so. I heard that as well. They're saying something about. I know. I know there was some sort of recall on um, pork because of of this COVID thing that's going around, and somebody was contaminating. Somebody was sick at one of the chopping facilities, out of the butchering facilities. Ooh. So they did a massive recall, and then I heard that they were supposed to have like a cow shortage or a beef shortage. So I, I, that's, this has been kind of buzzing around, um, mm -hmm. and, and I'm just getting wind from it from different places. A bunch of people are calling me, and they're like, hey, you got meat in your cooler? I'm like, yeah, definitely. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, but it, makes, I know it my... makes you wonder. I mean, I'm not trying to go one way or the other, whether or not there's a shortage or not. No one eats raw pork. So if yeah. you're worried about something being on it, it's not. It's going to be cooked. I, I hope. That's what I said. That's what I said. I mean, you're gonna you're gonna sear it. Yeah, at, at least the outside is going to be cooked. You know, and and this stuff. 
I mean, I'm not, I don't know the scientists, I signed, you know, all the scientific facts behind it, but they say it's supposed to die at like 1.30. So the outside of your pork yeah, is getting, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the outside's getting right. there. I just, it, it's probably the stigma of it too, that just people are being precautious, you know, in a way not to, uh, not to take a chance, I guess. I don't know. I, I think that, that's it. I think you're spot on there. It's, it's nobody, I, everyone's kind of scared. I think the point being though that that as a hunter though I I feel a little more secure uh just like you mentioned you know and even when my wife was on the phone with a person that that told her the news uh she kind of like shot me a sideways glance and was like ha you know in a way um <laughs> because <laughs> we got it yeah <laughs> yeah we're uh, I think we're good to go which is it's comforting it's just it's terrible that it falls in between the seasons um yeah yeah definitely definitely and i think it's a it, it may present some challenges if people don't have rollover from the fall or from from but the isn't that what we talk about with harvesting nature we talk about eating things that people are generally uncomfortable eating squirrel you know small game rabbit hair like yes we're there might be a meat shortage of beef but, but you might not but if want things are, iguana, but there's 20 iguanas out there. There's random chickens. Yeah. There are yeah. out there. It's but it, if things are, are out of season, catch. though, that's that's my, my main question right. is, like, it, you know, like Florida, they closed some of the wildlife management areas. The half a turkey season got closed. And, you know, Terrible. I saw, but you, can still you know, fish. other places – they well, but some places. What was it? Michigan. They they completely closed fishing. They closed everything. Oh, it's out here. The uh, these the California shores are closed to fishing, so you can't you can't cast off the beach or do anything. Oh wow! And, yeah, and yeah. I mean, oh, they, but they they've closed the beaches and the piers. So in Pennsylvania, they open the trout season early, so they're they're uh, you know, wanting us to get out there and go fishing. Uh, FWC, awesome. take notes. Yeah, <laughs> Corey, is it already open? It's. It was supposed. The first day was supposed to be um, Saturday, April eighteenth, but they opened it um, like a week and a half early. Did you go out for the opening? Well, uh, yes, I was working from home in the morning, and then I saw posts on social media. I'm like, well, I guess, <laughs> I guess I know what I do. I'm doing this afternoon, so got out there with the kids. <laughs> so um did you notice more people out and about for it or you fish in kind of a secluded spot um there was i i saw more people than what i expected to see and and uh um most of the time the you know the first couple weeks of of trout season in pennsylvania gets is pretty busy and then it's towards the end of april beginning of march or may when turkey season opens, that that starts to to die down a little bit, but so we'll see in the next couple of weeks how how many people are out there. Nice and and Ara, you said uh, California closed shore fishing. I mean, in on the beaches, they're they're closed. The piers are closed. Lakes are closed. Um, I I kind of I went I made my way to a river last weekend, which was cool. <laughs> uh, you know, there and it you know it's I, I feel like. We're staying home. We're we're avoiding everybody. Uh, I, I go out in the outdoors. I try to get as far away from people as possible. 
and uh, you know I'm gonna go there this weekend as well. Uh, it's it's about an hour and a half away, and there is nobody really around, and just chilling by a river is where I want to be. So every, everything else is closed. All our trails are closed. Um, pretty much, you can go around your block and stuff. So it's it's kind oh, of wow. yeah, you can't really get. I mean, there's there's BLM around here that you can get to, uh, but mm-hmm. most of the stuff they they've shut it down. Like I t- last weekend, I took my camping gear. Uh, I was like, you know what? We just load up some stuff, and if we just stay there the night, we'll stay the night. But as we got there, I just I noticed I called Park Services just to be sure, and they shut down everything. What they do is they look for a car, and then they'll they'll they know you're there because a car is somewhere near. Yeah, you know, and even you hook it in is like six to ten feet away at a minimum. I mean, usually like twenty feet away. Yeah, yeah. It's just I mean, out here especially those the. Depending on where you are, the, the campsites that are like designated campsites, they just get flocked with people. You just have to know where to go. Like all of a sudden you'll be like, you're camping, but then everything that's like an awesome spot, unless you really have your good areas, there's, there's just, it's flocked with people. It sounds like a wonderful so, problem to have. People are getting outside and camping. Honestly, it's, it's, there's a California, LA area has a, you have a group of people that just, kind of suck and then you have a bunch of people that are just dying <laughs> to go outdoors and those outdoors people like we're, we're the people that are out there we're hitting the mountains during the snow season we're hitting we're camping we're, we're not so much we go to the beaches but it's, it's more hitting where there's trees where there's lakes where there's rivers yeah. that's like and there's a massive amount of people that just love that yeah I love it like I, I'm I'm not a fan of California by nature but there it, i will admit there is some true beauty out there and it i mean from the oceans or pismo beach going out there. oh yeah yeah oh the sand God. dunes oh man so yes it there's a part of it that just draws to me and i'm like okay this is beautiful and uh it's it's it definitely it has it's so big and this is what i would say like you you go to southern california like it's where i live it's you know it's 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 a hustle and bustle it's city life it's it's all this, but you go up north just a little bit, and I mean there is beautiful, beautiful areas. I mean the Sequoia National Forest. You go up there, and I mean near Pismo Beach, like you said, the yeah. sand dunes out there. Yeah. There's a lot to see, and there's a lot to do once you get out of these major, major hubs. Yeah. What's that? What is it? Solvang. Is Solvang, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's definitely. a beautiful place. God, I love that place. <laughs> it is. It's nice up there. It is yeah. definitely nice up yeah. there. Get some pancakes. <laughs> <laughs> so, talking a little bit about the outdoor activities and stuff. Um, it I can't remember if not if spring turkey. Um, yeah, yeah. There's there's spring turkey, and then there's there's no there's fall turkey and spring turkey. In my okay. in my area, there there's no turkey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like it, you got to go a distance to get it but uh you're either going down towards like san diego county exactly or, up, or way up, up north, north way way up north i the only turkey i ever killed was in tennessee so. oh nice <laughs> yeah good turkey good yeah. southern turkey <laughs> yeah definitely um and actually i saw uh it was on my list of things to talk about was your actually no, I didn't put it on the list. Uh, you had a, a prosciutto wrapped turkey cutlet recipe. Yeah, that that was I developed that one when I got that Tennessee turkey. 
So, I mean, that was, that was a fun one. I, it's, so a lot of my friends that have hunted and a lot of people that I know have this big, their big issue is they don't know what to do with the meat. Um, I've heard from a ton of people that wild turkey doesn't taste good. And I was like, that's impossible. Same with people say that, say that wild boar doesn't taste good. And, you know, like I just, I have a big, I, all, everybody that knows me, I, I constantly get in arguments with people about using the term gamey. And this is a thing that always comes up. And especially as being a hunter, like you tell somebody, oh, that turkey, wild turkey is no good. It tastes gamey. I go, well, what does that mean? Like, what does gamey mean? Well, it just means, you know, it has that wild taste. So you mean it tastes the way it should because it's eating its natural yep. food? Yes. Yeah. Because it's active? Are you, is that what you, it's not familiar? It's not bland turkey like you're used to? Is that what it means? Like, how can you describe turkey as being gamey and then also describe uh, a deer as being gamey and then also describe wild boars? Are they all, do they all taste the same? Is that what they're telling me? May, may I, Justin, do you remember? Yeah. So on Justin, what was it? Podcast one, two, or three, no later. But that's one thing we brought up. And I have a theory that this is how meat tastes. So they say it's gamey, but that's the flavor. That's the flavor of how it tastes. Now, when you have all these farm-raised pen, you know, all these animals and all the pens and everything injected with you know, hormones, whatever, it starts to water down the taste. Of course. So you get used to this bland fed to you by this produced, you know, farm or, or wherever. It's produced, it's put in the grocery stores, and you, and you eat this farm chicken, farm beef, farm whatever. But then you taste an actual animal that's only been grazing off the wild, and you're like, oh, there's all this, this it must be gamey. No, that's the flavor. That's the true flavor of the animal. <laughs> That's right. It's what it tastes like. I, to me, I say I tell people that game, what you're calling gamey, it doesn't describe a taste. It just it means different. Like you're saying this tastes gamey. That doesn't mm -hmm. describe. It doesn't mean it's sour or spicy or salty or bitter. You're not saying yeah. anything. You're saying a dove is gamey because it doesn't taste like chicken. Well, of course, it doesn't taste like chicken. It flies all day long. You know what I mean? The, the, the myoglobins inside the blood are, are charging it full of this flavor and everything that it eats that you're surrounding it with tastes completely different than corn fed chicken. It's, you can't describe flavor by one word and make it make sense to anybody. Like, and I, I, I think, think that's one of the, the big, the big things that people, a lot of people understand. And then there's a, there's a, a larger group that, you even there's there's a flavor difference between you go to a supermarket and you buy the cheapest priced cut yeah of meat definitely. or you step up and you're buying like a premium cut of meat you're already putting a difference in flavor between those two both can be beef both can be bison both can be chicken or pork there's a difference in the flavor and then when you wagyu. compare it it's it's comparing it's comparing apples to oranges exactly. when you add wild exactly. game in. And, and I, I can't agree 100%. It, it, it irks me. And my, my interpretation of, of the, the people saying stuff is gamey is the guy that shoots the, uh, the deer doesn't gut it out, throws it in the back of his pickup truck for the, the warm afternoon, you know, and then takes it to the processor with, you know, it cooks a little in his truck. <laughs> right. Right. And then, you know, he's, he's or it's on the hood of the car. <laughs> right. 
it's not <laughs> properly handled, not you know, not not processed well, and and then when you, when you go to eat eat that, of course it's going to taste quote unquote gamey because it's yeah it's it's not handled well. So that's that's how I there's, always there's turd blood on the ham. Right, right. <laughs> So that, that I, that's how I always I agree with you, Corey. Like, hundred percent, hundred percent. I think it it starts with field care too. Um, you know what was it? We were talking, and there's all these other theories too of like, um, the state of the animal at the time it dies. Like, if it's pumped full of adrenaline, if it's all the there, there's a there's a ton of varying theories, but I think. You know, the flavor profile of the meat is going to reflect its diet 95% of the time. 100%. Um, outside of that, field care and is going to be your next biggest factor. And then storage of of the meat. Aging. Aging, yeah. I think, is a huge part of it. And that's, that's one thing that nobody gets. I, I, not nobody. A lot of people get wrong. And, and most meat that you get from a, a grocery store, people don't know it's, it's wet aged. So yep. it's had its time to relax and, and it, it's past its green stage is what we call it. Um, and most people don't ever let it rest enough to where it's actually going to, you know, start breaking itself down to where the meat's going to taste better. It, it intensifies. You don't need a dry ager to do it. Like I let my venison, when I, when I kill a deer, I, I let it sit a minimum seven to 10 days before I start breaking it down even more. So I'll cut it into pieces, let it rest. So like the muscle has enough time to kind of slightly break down and you don't actually lose a lot of meat in that, in that respect, like seven to 10 days, isn't that much time, but if you cut open, you know, immediately, and then you start grilling it, you're going to get this weird texture, this weird kind of funky taste. And I think a lot of people skip that one step as well. So So, people may ask Justin real quick. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. I think we probably have the same question. So, but where go. would you where would you age this meat if if you didn't know you're just getting into it? You go out, you hunt a deer, you get one, and you say, you know what? I want to I want to age it seven to ten days. Do you have your a separate freezer just for that, or fridge, or what do you? So, do? so I have I I have a garage fridge, and what I usually do is I'll just empty it out, and then I'll hang it. If I can hang it, if I can't hang it, I'll put it on, uh, you know, a sheet tray with, with some ra- like a rack on it, just so it has circulation all the way around it. So it's not laying down and you don't want it to kind of pull up. You just want it to kind of rest ideal situation. It would be temperature controlled and you have some sort of moving air, but it's, it's, I'm not saying that's not necessary. You can just do it in any fridge. Those fridges that you don't necessarily want to do it on are the most modern, modern day fridges because they have these cooling systems inside of them that, that tend to put like this frost chill on it. So it, it doesn't break it down the same way. Like an so older fridge works better for this. Average person buy like a hundred dollar fridge on Craigslist, Facebook marketplace. Yeah. yeah. Clear out all the shelves and you can hang meat yep. or you can put them on the rack as long as the air can circulate. Exactly. So you, if you leave it out there before even touching it, before you even touch it, what I, I usually do is I put them in um, the bags, the game bags, and I'll leave them in the game bags just sitting there. And if you don't want it to pool up with blood, you don't want it to you don't want it to get wet, you actually want the outside to be dry. So you dry it, you let it sit there, you let it hang seven to ten days. After that, I break it down into smaller pieces. 
if you're going to leave it in a vacuum sealed pack, if you leave it, if you vacuum seal it and you put it in the fridge, you maybe triple the amount of time you need. If you freeze it, you quadruple the amount of time you need. So if you, if you cut up, let's say you cut up a, uh, a, um, a deer loin and then you vacuum seal it and you throw it in the freezer, it would take at least five months if you did it immediately to get to where it needs to be. Hmm. But if you and let so, yeah, go on. So what, um, I guess I sort of understand it, but just to spell it out, the, the differences, if you could just compare the difference say, I took mine out, I didn't age it at all. I put it in the freezer and then two months later I pulled steaks out, thawed it, threw them on the grill versus I followed the process. I dry aged it or aged it in the, the refrigerator hanging. And then two months later I did side by side comparison. Like what, what do you think you would see as a result? So, so right off the bat, um, what happens, you're going to get a much more tender piece, no matter what it is. If you had apples to apples, your piece that was aged is going to be, it's going to seem like it's more tender. Uh, the flavor, what's going to do is going to start when you age meat, what it's doing is it's drying out towards the outside and it's basically releasing its water. So it's, it's compacting the flavor inside of that one. If you take one steak and you dry aged it, it's going to condense that flavor, make it a more tender cut of meat and make it a more enjoyable meal. If you did it the other way, like let's say you just vacuum packed it and then you you ate it right away it's not it's not that it's going to be bad it's just going to be that much better if you at least let it rest seven to ten days what then the science behind it is when when you kill something it goes through its rigor mortis stage and that rigor mortis stage everybody knows that if you've killed a big animal it's it's floppy and then all of a sudden it seizes up all the muscles stiffen up and it has Mm -hmm. to get past that and it's not when it gets past that. It's not just when you're field dressing it and starts the muscles start to get loose. It goes down to like the molecular level where the muscles slowly, slowly start releasing their tension, and then it becomes an edible piece of meat. So, when I shoot hog, one of the biggest things I do because I want to eat that fresh hog, and I shoot my boars, I brine them to kind of help break it down. But you're saying dry aging it would also kind of uh, get rid of the need to have to brine it. So, yeah, def- well, brining with, with pork is a thing that will impede moisture inside of it. So that helps with moisture content and keeping it juicy. Okay. So that, mm-hmm. doesn't, that doesn't necessarily help with the meat itself breaking down. Pork has a less amount of – there's less time you need to do it with pork than you would do with any kind of red meat. So it's keeping it uh, juicier, but it still might still be tough. Exactly. Okay, exactly. Okay. So you could have a juicy. I know you've done, you've had it before. We've all done it. You've had like it's juicy, but it's still kind of tough. Yeah, it tastes yes, good, absolutely. but it's harsh Especially to bite ribs. into. Yeah. Exactly. So this will help with that. Pork, you don't need to do it as much. I usually leave my pork in the fridge for like three three to six days, okay. somewhere around that. Um, and it also depends on the the por- the part of it. Uh, when I kill a hog, the first thing I eat is a heart. Uh, that's like my my gift. To myself yeah it's a treat hunter's treat <laughs> yeah, hunters and yeah. Lovers, man that's the best honestly it's it's and then like the and prize then, in the cereal pack it, it's exactly what it is that's exactly what it is 
So I, that, that's like what I, what I, we, we bring back to camp. We all get our hearts. We saute up the carts and then like you, you leave the rest for home. It's just, so go on. Um, I, I have a question for Corey. Corey, um, I know that in the Northeast, it's a big, um, custom, I guess, I guess you could call it a custom to, uh, hang deer outside in the winter yeah and yeah that's awesome is that is that uh it's still a pretty common practice yeah i'd say i don't do it a whole lot because um i get a lot of deer in archery season and it gets too warm to to do that and like like our uh, i have a garage fridge that uh that i use to help age um and then uh Late season, I've I've let them hang in my shed, but then they freeze solid, so it's it's tough to work with them when they're a a, a, a solid block of meat. Ooh, yeah, um, it gets cold. Yeah, <laughs> when it's frozen solid, it's not aging, right? No, it it just slows it down. So I guess our our biggest takeaway, the piece of advice for this process is coming in and probably. Like your average hunter, if you're gonna break it down in the field, probably breaking it down into quarters. Exactly. Uh, breaking Hunter. down the back strap or the loin, and just game bag them separately, and yes. then al- allowing them to either hang or sit on a rack or a tray, and just have them just age for you know a week or so. Yeah, what uh, I would do is the largest pieces you can keep in your fridge. If you could do the whole thing, I would do the whole thing. If you got to break it into quarters, do it into quarters. If you got to break it into smaller pieces separating, just the largest pieces that you can keep, keep those together. Cuz the the smaller they are, the more they're going to dry out. So, if you do a proper dry aging, let's say for beef where they do 25 days, 28 days, 100 day dry aging of beef, there's this kind of pellicle that grows on the outside, which is just Mm -hmm. this good um, bacteria, more or less, that kind of attacks it, and they got to trim away all of that, but it condenses the flavor. With this, you're not going to get that. It's not going to be that long, but the smaller the piece, the quicker the outside will dry out, and you might need to trim away some if it's a very small piece. So when you dry age, do you add any kind of rubs or anything, or do you just leave it as is? No, no, no. Just you're literally taking it from the field and getting a clean piece of meat and then letting it sit. And definitely, um, I have not done this. I've always like pretty much processed it, uh, you know, at the point of like breaking down the animal in the field, putting it into quarters, into the cooler, and then back home as sort of soon as possible. And this, uh, Oh, man, this raises a lot of thoughts in my mind now as I think about it. Well, yeah, um, anything about like salt curing and things like that? And... Yeah, I mean, it depends. It Honestly, with me, like I, I went out to Wyoming and I got an elk and I just didn't have enough space in my fridge. You know what I mean? <laughs> so yeah. you, you, what, there's also a good the, problem to have. <laughs> yeah, honestly, honestly. So what I ended up doing was I dry aged the pieces that I was going to eat as whole lobes of meat. And then I ground the rest of it, you know, Mm, Um, and then and I also let that ground meat just sit in bags for a good amount of time because it doesn't go bad. Fresh meat doesn't go bad as as fast as people think. 
So, I mean, your store-bought meat that you get, people typically buy meat from the grocery store, and after like four days, they think it's gone bad. But the reality is that meat has spent like almost 30 days in a vacuum-sealed bag just in the refrigerator, uh, and, and sometimes even more. Uh, I've, I've gotten pieces of brisket uh, at the kitchen that they have like a 90-day refrigeration on it. So they're 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 straight from the from the farm and ninety days in a cryovac they're good. But I think that's which is the, seal. the psychological part of it, right? Like we we want to be conscious about what we eat. We want to eat healthy stuff, and we don't want to get sick. We don't want food poisoning. We're not this and that. So yeah. that also goes back to the whole taste gamey conversation, right? Like, all right, I eat this. I'm comfortable with this. This is good. This and that. Oh, that that came from the field. Let me let me. Oh. Yeah. You're not, you're not a certified FDA approved butcher from Publix. You're just yeah. some person. Yeah, yeah, it tastes gamey. So that also could add to that psychological feel of of naturally harvested meat tastes different because in your head you might doubt it. What do, what do you think about that? Is that a, a valid statement? I, I think I think a lot of the time. So th- there has been times that I, I don't try to trick people um, when I feed them my food. I Sometimes if you don't ask, I'm not going to tell you right away. If you ask me what it is, I'm going to tell you. And there's been times mm-hmm. when I tell people, I feed people stuff and they're, they're like, this is fantastic. It's awesome. Once they find out what it is, they go through their moral dilemmas or whatever it is. And they're like, <laughs> oh, well, yeah. uh, I don't know. I don't know. I was like, well, you know, 20 minutes ago, you were all about it. You were just, you wanted, yep. you wanted the recipe. You were, you were freaking out. And now all of a sudden, because I told you what it is, you're you're questioning it. I mean, I do I do like to eat every part of the animal. So like you know I I've fried up uh, you know ram balls that we've killed. You know what I mean? Like and you just it, yeah. every part I want to eat. Yeah. So so it's it's you know some parts are questionable. I've had some bad experiences too, but yeah, that's how you learn. Um, it, I, I chalk it up to like back in the day everybody used to eat every part of every single animal and there wasn't it wasn't even like a question you know no. the the loins and the white meats and stuff were were things for the kings and the queens and then everybody else got the the scraps and some of the, the best the, food the, the definition of french cooking right there exactly not, not. exactly and i mean the best foods have come from it and now now i like peasant foods are the new in thing Coco van lobsters used to be peasant food. Exactly. It was yeah. I mean, lobster is like a tech. It's a it's a bottom feeder. It's supposed to be gross, but now it's like a high dollar item. I say this the the Coco van thing. Coco van is is uh, rooster in wine. It was an old French dish mm-hmm. because the peasants couldn't just eat the rooster. They had to soak it in wine and mirepoix overnight for it to actually become tender. Now you go to a fancy restaurant and they're like, oh, we're serving Coco van. You know what I mean? Like the peasant food has turned into like the thing everybody wants to eat. So it's it's our duty to just try everything. Yep. And I think uh, that goes back to the whole conversation we, we have kind of continuously is sort of like evolving recipes and, uh, and just like you, you got to try it. It's either going to be good or it's not going to be good, but it's, it's, it's not going to be terrible. You know, and yeah, you know. exactly. Yeah. It's not gonna kill. Well, it could kill you, but uh, if, if you ha- trust the person that's making it, yeah, uh, you know if, what I mean. If you follow some general guidelines, you Audience, know, and and we we have you, the luxury of having the internet, 
and there is a lot of information up there. You know what I mean? And and you can find out things from everything. You just go to Harvesting Nature. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not to mention outside of us. The, yeah. There's a lot of there's, excellent... There's information everywhere, and, and somebody's done it somewhere, and you can get a basic guideline. You'll, you'll know if you cook something in this direction or this way or to this temperature, you know, it'll, it'll, it should be safe. I, I run into that sometimes as I'm, I'm working on recipes and stuff because I try not to duplicate a lot of, of like what's out there. You obviously have kind of your standard comfort foods that you see, you know, like, uh, you know, chicken fried steak with venison or, yeah. you know, those those sort of standards that everybody likes. But to come out of it and be like, I want to be completely original, it's it's hard because there's a lot of people out there now uh, cooking and writing recipes, which I think is great. It's a, it's a great thing that's come around. Oh, for sure. It's, it's, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot, it's, it's easy to try and mimic somebody. Um, it, what you can get from people is coming up with a basic concept of cooking this cut of something. If you're going to cut, if you're going to cook, you know, a deer liver for the first time, you know, there's a way that people have done it. You don't need to mimic the recipe, but you just need to know how, you know, what yeah. steps to take. Um, you can change yeah. the ingredients and the seasonings and the additives, but to cook a liver is to cook a liver is to cook a liver. Like, right, yeah. but also keep in mind, right, you have you have moms and pops and people coming in that have, that, that mm-hmm. are just new to the, to the wild game, and they might yeah. be like, you know what? Like, I used to make this whole recipe with store-bought beef or, or, or uh, you know, it's, uh, pork, but now yeah. I'm a wild boar. So I want to yeah. incorpor- I want to incorporate my wild game to match yeah. this recipe. So yeah. I, I get that I I respect the fact that you want to come up with something original and try things new. You want to explore, right? You want to find find that wilderness. Yeah, definitely. And also help people out when they're trying to to look at current things that they love and incorporate their wild game into it because that'll get them more into hunting the wild. Exactly, finding those old recipes and just adding mm-hmm. adding yeah. the meat to it, the fresh meat. Yep, yeah, it's what it's all about. I, uh, I I try a lot. Uh, I've been working, oh gosh, for the past probably 10 years or so on a, an American Indian styled cookbook, kind of working on recipes, That's awesome. uh, a regional recipes from each tribe, like sort of across and reaching out to tribes and like getting, you know, whoever their expert is on their culinary history to be like, hey, like, what would you cook with? What would it do? And sort of spinning modern techniques. But one thing I run into is like, there's still a lot of all right you're talking pre-columbian times that everybody's eating wild game all the way up through probably the you know the early 1900s 1950s all the way up like you're having native communities that are eating diets yeah comprised mostly wild game and now you're Somebody now you're living it. in a world where it's it's not kind of that it's now it's domestic raised cattle or you know sheep or anything and, and not that there's anything wrong with those because people eat what they have but just to sort of try to reconstruct the history you run into some of those issues of like hey we eat this and now this has been around for so long it's a traditional recipe for us but but you question like you know sort of is it yeah I guess. yeah you ready showtime on May 3rd, summer starts with the Fall Guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. 
Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Let's say people are brand new coming into this. Like, I want to go out and I want to bow hunt my own hog or I want to, you know, bow fish my own massive fish or, or whatever. As as a chef with your talents, what would be the basic, the bare minimum knives, the type of knives that you would suggest having? Okay, so cooking-wise or butchering-wise? Like, that's like, a, that's like preparing, a, preparing, so, yeah, cooking, preparing. So, so for me, I have, I, I do most of my, I would say 95% of my cooking is done with a chef's knife. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very rare that I'll pick up any other knife besides maybe a boning knife um, or a fillet knife, depending if I have to do fish. Uh, so having a, a proper, proper chef's knife, and I get this, actually, this question comes up a lot not specifically just for game, wild game, but uh, in all cooking, I tell people don't spend whatever money you want to spend on a knife set. Take all of that money and buy one knife. Really? Okay. Yeah. So take, if you want to spend $50 on a knife set, buy a $50 knife. You want to spend $100, $200, spend whatever money that you want to spend. A $200 knife set, buy a $200 knife. One $200 $200 chef's knife and then treat that knife correctly. Like, you know, respect it, sharpen it. If you can learn how to hone it and don't put it in the sink. Don't cut it on tile. You know, don't cut on metal, put it, cut no only dishwasher. on a cutting board. No dishwasher. It no. takes literally 10 seconds to clean a knife. <laughs> the the, the mm-hmm. big Michael Myers chef knife, right? Yeah. Is the, is the number one go-to that you use. So yeah, when I'm cooking, it is I, I use a nine inch chef's knife. That's okay. my my go to. I have I have an eight inch and a nine inch that I, I kinda bounce between. And that's my go to when I'm cooking. When I'm fabbing down animals, I have um I use I use a skinning knife. Um I have a couple custom made ones by a, a knife maker that I got that has like a um my very first deer I killed, I sent the femur bone to this custom knife nice. maker yeah. and then he made me a, a a skinning knife with the femur of the first deer so yeah uh, that's that's my go-to uh you know when you're caping that's that's a different story but cooking wise chef's knife always okay because i i feel like that's a, a topic of conversation that comes up um i've i i've i re i upcycle old knives i take old antique things i bring them up I make I, I have some awesome butcher knives, chef's knives, this and that. But when it comes down to actually processing wild game, it comes to okay, wh- what do I need? And I'm starting to select and look through what I want. But I've also seen in other friend family households, them saying like, well, what do I use? And they're they're pulling out like steak knives. It's like no, no, stop. You need this. So, so no, no. When I'm cutting, if I'm cutting. Knife, if I'm cutting down the animal and it's still on the bone, I mm-hmm. won't use my chef knife. That's all done with my skinning. Mm-hmm. Everything okay. is done with my skinning. When I'm actually cooking and breaking down maybe pieces, finer pieces, or cooking, it's a chef's knife. Chef's knife. So okay. it's, yeah, right. if you're breaking, if the animal still looks like an animal, it's a, it's a, it's a skinning knife. Okay. 
and that'll what, do what pretty much. If you have a hunk of meat, if you have a five pound slab of meat. Oh, it's a chef's knife. Okay. Yeah. That's some good knife. info for people. Yeah. Definitely. Thank you. Well, yeah. I 100 percent agree with that. I have an eight inch uh, chef knife. I think I've rotated through two knives only in the last ten years. I've used the same two, cycle between them. Yeah. Jo- it- Justin, what's your favorite uh, sharpening platform? Oh, that's a good question. I like that. A, that is a good I question. Like it. I like it. Um, so it's funny you ask that. So I uh have been like a whetstone guy for the longest uh but i've been doing a lot of research recently on those work sharp yeah so they they make a kitchen version i haven't got it yet but i've been doing a lot of thinking and a lot of uh it's the a ken, lot of research uh, the ken onion version is the, okay. is the work sharp ken onion version where you can adjust the the angle of the sharpness yeah. yep so you oh, can man. adjust it I have so I I have that as well. Um, mm-hmm. I love it. It's badass. It it sharpens things very quickly. I was using it for a very long time, and now I've resorted back to the. I use a diamond and whetstone. Okay. So I do a comma. Okay. I start with a diamond two sides, then go to wet. The Kenon that that uh, with the work sharp works amazing, and I, re, I I recommend it to everybody because. Most people don't have the patience to sit there and do a hundred strokes on each side on each oh, yeah. on each stone. It's like if you unless you really really like your knives, you know what I mean. Where you I, like I sit there and I kind of zen out with it. <laughs> but so a work do, sharp, you yep. can do it in, in ten minutes. So if you do a work sharp or if you do a diamond, regardless, you sharpen yeah. your knife. Is there any difference in how long they will stay sharp versus <clears throat> either or, or is it about the same? It, the the length of time that'll stay sharp is the same. The way the edge performs is slightly different. Okay. So I don't like with my if I if I spend the time, which I do every once in a while, and and work through my diamond stones to my whetstone, I can cut a grape without touching the grape and take little slices right. with one hand. If with a work sharp, I've never been able to get it to do that. So for the craftsman. You might want the diamond stone and take the time to do that, but for the novice, you might want to get the work sharpener and just. I would say I would say that ninety eight percent of people should just get a work sharp because it make like makes life easy. And there's like a two percent of us that are like knife freaks that just want. <laughs> you know what I mean? You just yeah, want. No, I, I get it. How I much my, sharper I can it get? My knife. I, yeah, I'm in the air. So. Yeah, I uh, it's it's almost therapeutic. And back when I was in the the kitchens professionally, like that was sort of like a morning thing. Like I would come in, and if I knew it was going to be a long day for me of working with my knife, like continuously, like a lot of prep work, I would come in and I would I would sharpen my knife for a good like thirty minutes. So I just put my headphones in, cue up whatever on my iPod, yeah. takes it back, yeah, <laughs> and just uh, just go to town. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, I think an important thing to point out, too, is like the difference in sort of uh, the use of a knife in a home setting and the use of a knife in a professional setting, because even the application and what your knife's going to go through is going to be at different levels. Yeah. The frequency of sharpening using a... uh, using a honing steel or using a whetstone or anything like there's there's certain things but 
what what are your, I guess what are your thoughts on that? I mean, it, in a home kitchen, the amount of times you have to sharpen the knife is not nearly as much as working in a professional kitchen. When you're in a pro mm-hmm. kitchen, you're you're on your blade, you're hammering it out. Most people don't spend. You're not you're not cutting. 50 pounds of onions you know what i mean you're mm-hmm. cutting an onion and then you're cutting something else as long as people take care of their knives at their houses it their knives should last an extremely long time the problem is nobody knows how to properly care for them and one like one afterthought of of chopping on like a piece of tile or you know i just want to cut this cheese or you know Somebody wants to open a can or their, you know, their mail, you know, and they just find the first sharp thing and that's yep. where they, they, it dulls super fast and you go into anybody's house and they got beat up knives. They're like, oh, they used to be sharp. It's like you're not doing enough stu- stuff with those knives to make them dull. You're just beating them up. Yeah. I, I think advice for a hunter or an angler is treat your knife like you would treat your rifle or like you would teach your treat your prized fly fishing rod or spinning rod or, or whatever you got like that's a tool that's involved in the entirety of the process of of the animal of the fish of whatever like you're going to use it probably more than than the fishing pole or the yeah. rifle yeah you don't you don't just cut something and then just chuck the knife into the into the sink to get washed later or throw it in the dishwasher I mean that just torches the knife Mm-hmm. It just you might as well be using a blunt edge the next time you want to fillet your fish. Yep, and I I think too, and um, I remember, man, I was I was a young man when I when I heard this the first time. It's like more people get cut by dull knives than get cut by sharp knives. Hundred percent, I agree with that. I mean, people when somebody touches my my knife set, they they kind of get scared. They're like, oh, they're so sharp, and I was like, you won't cut yourself with a sharp knife. It's the dull knife that slips on an onion skin yep. or the dull knife that as you're trying to, you know, gut your fish, it's not actually cutting through. You just try to jam it into the guts and then it slips up into your hand. Uh, you know, there's there's all these little aspects where you're forcing the knife as opposed to letting the knife do the work. So do you follow a lot of the uh, a lot of the more like craft knife makers that are emerging um, nowadays? So I, I, I do follow a, a good amount of them. I have, honestly, there's a, there's a group, there's these uh, partners out in uh, Georgia called Bloodroot Blades. And I've had a custom order with them for about four years, and it should be coming in actually next month for me. <laughs> so um, they do some fantastic work. They repurpose uh, knife knives. So not necessarily knife. So they'll take like a granite saw cutting blade and then use that as the blade for your knife or like the sway bar of a 60 or 57 Chevy, you know, uh, it, they'll use that and use the metal from that to make into a knife. And I've, I've had these, I'm, I'm kind of like a knife geek when it comes to this stuff. So <laughs> I have a, I have a knife that's coming to me and it has in the handle, I sent them my, my son's baby blanket and my daughter's christening gown. And they're weaving that into the handle to make it this kind of, um, you know, this forever knife piece that has this like nostalgia behind it. And then the blade is going to be a, uh, a low pattern Damascus steel, like a, an actual Damascus steel. Oh, so, that's really cool. Yeah. It's, it's, I'm just a little a little knife geeking out but <laughs> <laughs> that's okay i uh i i think uh, a lot of chefs uh we're in that boat uh for yeah. sure 
Um, yeah. You know. Uh, I'll definitely I'll definitely be posting it when I when I uh, when it comes. It should actually be coming next week, I think. So um, it should be pretty cool. I'm, I'm eager to see photos. <laughs> yeah. I, I've been follow. I follow those guys too. Uh, they've they've got some great knives out. Yeah. Um, I've been looking at getting a, a custom knife piece for a while. Uh, I haven't pulled the trigger, but it's coming. So it's we'll see. It. There's for for on it for for knives for Japanese. No, you're good. For for Japanese knives. There is a website that I do actually really love. It's called Chef's Knives to Go. And they have great, they're basically Japanese sword makers that have made Chef's Knives. And you can pop on and find some knives that are, that are, I, I got the one I'm using right now. It was made by some master swordsman's apprentice. And Hanzo. I got it. Yeah, basically a Hanzo steel. <laughs> this was, this is pure Hanzo steel. And it, it's, you can choose your knives by the different steel that you want and also different shapes and sizes and they have reasonable prices. So um, I, I have kind of reverted to going there. I, I personally like Japanese style knives as opposed to like the Western knife handles. It makes a big difference. Ah, see, I, 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 I lean more towards like the, the French styles, like the traditional French, both in the in the handle and in the blade too. I just for uh, for my my handling it fits well it's honestly it's all preference there's no there's no right or wrong it's how it fits in your hand and how it feels to that person there's no my my mom does wonders with a with like a small petty knife you know what i mean yeah she feels comfortable with it a knife should be what feels comfortable in your hand and what you can you know easily maneuver right so so i got a i got a pairing knife i got a chef knife i got a scaling knife and i got um a butcher knife but what I did is I sourced them out through antique malls, wherever. I, I find these old knives, and I try to upcycle them and reuse them and, and give them a purpose. So I, yeah. I have about four knives that I rely on, but uh, that's about it. Uh, it's, it's, you know what, it's what you're comfortable using, and most people use the same few knives. Like I said, I use a chef's knife. And then I have a few other opportunities to use other knives. Like when I'm cutting sushi, I do use my sushi slicing knife. You know, when I, when I, I need a fillet, you need to skin a fish. You can't really do it with a chef's knife. Right, there are right. very small instances. But I knives, you know, bringing it all back, it's, it's get the best knife that you can possibly purchase and put all of that effort and money into one knife. Well, yeah, that makes sense because that's, that's your one tool. Yeah, that's, that's I, th I think it's a tool. it's a good strategy. Yeah. yeah. Um. So, sort of moving away from knives because I feel like we could talk about this for a while. <laughs> um. Uh, Cor, do you have any questions about knives? I know uh, now what I'm doing wrong with my uh, my chef's knife, so uh, I'm not gonna throw it in the sink anymore. Never. It, it takes one but second I, to I, wipe I, it. I do know not to put it in the dishwasher. Oh, there oh, we go. Thank, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> it took a little while uh, right after my my wife and I, when we were still dating for when we got together, and uh, that was like a, con a point of contention for a good while of like I would open the dishwasher after everything was done and there would be like knives in there. And I'm uh. like, uh, uh, pain. Uh, <laughs> pain. I got but, two kids doing dishes. Yeah, it's going to keep happening. So I'm just accepting uh, buying new knives later. 
all good. Here at Harvest in Nature, we are known to cook a variety of wild fish and game in a variety of ways. Probably one of my favorite methods is to cook in a smoker. Traeger Grills has some of the best products out there. Their pellet grills aren't just grills. They're smokers and ovens too. Anything you can do in the oven in your house, you can do on the Traeger. You can make desserts. You can grill steaks. You can use cast iron pans and braise tough cuts. You can allow roasts and briskets to smoke all day until they're tender and delicious. You can even use it to make jerky. Their variety of pellets are also very impressive. The different flavors of wood allow you to pair with your meat or fish or vegetables and give it the most flavor that you can create. They even have varieties created specifically for your next wild fish or game meal. Um, let's talk a little bit about recipe development because I think I think that's a, a, a fun point given your history and sort of, you know, we all like recipes. Yeah. Um, what strategy do you go about or what thoughts do you go into when you're looking at a recipe so when i'm when i'm developing a new recipe it, a lot of it comes from um ideas or concepts that i have or cuisine types like i'll i'll usually target some sort of cuisine and then attack it from there think of let's say you know, if I want to do something Mexican or I want to, you know, I have some sort of fish, I, I want to, I want to, first I target what kind of cuisine I, I want to, to shape that recipe into and then find ingredients that are going to pair well with whatever it is. Uh, in my line of work, I do everything from developing recipes like a turkey sandwich to developing, uh, you know, chicken tikka masala, which is like an Indian dish. There's like the whole gamut of of recipes that i need to come up with and when it comes to wild game i think there's so much opportunity out there because people have been stuck doing the same old boring thing with mm -hmm. all the wild game that they've had because their grandparents have taught them how to hunt and then you just take your back strap and then you sear it and then you add some onions and then you call it a day you know but every dish that you eat has some sort of protein in it so those proteins, like we talked about earlier, can be supplemented. Uh, and for me, it's it's targeting the cuisine that I want, and then working backwards from there. So, our, what if someone says, you know what, I love lamb shawarma or heroes? Like, yeah. how would you say, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna make this better, and I'm gonna I'm gonna give you something you like even more? What would be your thought process and how you break that down? So, uh, like right off the bat, you say lamb shawarma. I think venison shawarma. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I, I, that's it's, it. It just fires like right it. in. Like, right. what makes it better? I, I, I love venison. That red meat will contrast even better. And then I can even add some sort of like little nuances, little little notes into it to where like where I hunt my mule deer. There's a lot of sage. So I can add sage maybe into the yogurt and that would pair well maybe with the, with the shawarma. So it's, it's, it's taking it like a little step higher, you know, just one upping it real quick. Nice. Nice. I think you, you pointed out with wild game a very, and I sort of, I don't harp on it a lot, but I harp on it enough of like when you're out hunting, stop and look around and see what's around you. Especially yeah. if you're you're in a new environment and say, all right, what is this animal eating? What is it drinking? What's it nearby? Because those those uh, subtleties in the in the flavor 
are going or in what it eats is going to exist in the flavor of the meat. Yeah, and it's 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 stuff that you won't even. It's not like you're going to eat this deer and be like, "Wow, it tastes like sage." But for some reason, if you pair sage with this meat, it works extremely well because that's what they're eating. It works well with a lot of things. I mean, you you hunt some bear and then there's blueberries around. You make blueberries with the bear, and it, it makes it makes sense in the meat. Yep. Just like in Longhorn, uh... Justin. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm telling you, it's 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 tried and true. The other thing I had talked about this last podcast, and I'll just mention it briefly again: uh, sage eating animals pair well with citrus. I don't know what it is, but it's it's just uh, through the experience I've had, it's just worked well. I like that. I like that. Um, so, so our and uh, up in our area, you know, it's just white-tailed deer, and um, where I live, it's a mix of like uh, big woods, big hardwoods, or and then on the other side of the county, it's a lot of uh, farmers' fields. So you know, cornfields or clover or alfalfa or, or whatever. So knowing about the environment here, the habitat here, how would what would you pair with the, the venison? How how would you ex- accentuate the Honestly, like, so if depending on what kind of hardwoods you have, I would try maybe using those hardwoods to try smoking it a little bit, you know, trying bringing those flavors around with it. You're not, I mean, you can, you know, you'll pair it with corn or maybe make some sort of like alfalfa, you know, sprouts inside of like a sandwich or something like that. But for me, my first go-to when you said hardwoods is use those hardwoods to smoke some of the meat. And that brings it out that way. It's pairing, you know, whatever's around, there's a way to use it. Uh, you know, think think like there's nothing else around. You don't have 50, you know, 49 other states, and this is your village, and you're a Native American, and you got to use what's around you. And it just seems to work with the, the meat flavors. I think. Yeah, uh, I think we have a lot of oak trees and, and cherry trees and stuff like that, so... Smoke it with with oak and or cherry. Oh and yeah, and and apple. If, apple if you have sour, do you have sour cherries. cherries or are they the sweet cherries? You know, you can do you can make like a you know, adding. Well, uh, some people don't like red meat with with that sweetness, but using cherries in there works. Nice. You, you hit the yeah. Never, I, never we had this. We had the same thought at the same time. He said cherries, and I was like, the fruit. Yeah, yeah there yeah. it is. Boom. Like total virgin here. Like, like I like hickory. I like oak. I like this and that. I've never smoked anything with a cherry tree. How oh yeah, you you can yeah you can use cherry wood. Um, it's it's one of those woods that you can use for smoking. It it does add flavor to it. A, a good a, a different uh, one that you're used to. Traeger makes cherry pellets. They definitely do. Have you, have yeah, you tried them? Is for it? sure. Yes, I, I have, have. I have too. Yeah, they're good. I'm a I'm a sucker for my Traeger. Damn. <laughs> well, now I'm curious because. I'm, I'm hickory and applewood all the way, but you know we used to we used to use uh, we used to use apple, just apple branches and twigs, like back yeah. home. Yeah. If yeah. you didn't have charcoal or something, you yeah. would just just go out and pick a bunch of apple limbs, and you would work. And it, it, there's a flavor complex that's there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and apple, it, apple that, goes a lot. Hickory goes a lot, but. Like, cherry oh, cherry works. All right, cherry all right, works. I'll take your, I'm gonna try it now. It, now I it try doesn't. It. Uh, it doesn't. It doesn't get as hot. It doesn't get as hot as like oak or mesquite, 
but if you're smoke, if you're just using it to smoke, it it, it impedes great flavor. Very interesting. Thank you. Yeah. And I'm not real good with uh, – I needed to be a better woodsman and figure out exactly what trees are in my area. But I think it's black cherry, and I'm not sure it, it actually – Fruits? Um, makes makes fruit, yeah. If you Yeah, if you try to use those woods, I think, I think you'll if, – if you use those to smoke some of your meat, I think you'll, you'll do a great job. I, I, a lot of people that I've talked to, a lot of people that hunt whitetail uh, – hate the meat and they just say like oh we'll just put ketchup on it and then i'm like uh, i don't understand what's your problem like I, I really just don't get it <laughs> but i there's i mean there's- yeah, so a, a lot of the a lot of the venison i eat the, the deer are eating acorns so like i know you feed pigs acorns to make the te- meat taste better so um yeah like i what, mean you can't knowing you can't that really do, how would how would you the the acorns they come from oak trees so I I would just use using that oak maybe to smoke it you, you it sounds like you don't have a lot of right. like fruiting trees or anything that you can add in addition to so that's kind of what I would pair it with just just try and bring it out just a little bit um, you know and it's not it's not it's not the end all it's not you know it's not like the meat's gonna be bad obviously you know it just you try to just pick something that's around right, you right. to to cook it with whatever you're cooking. And it does something to it, and it's it's um it's strange. Somebody that wouldn't even know the land would be like, "Wow, this tastes great." And there's I don't know what it is, and it's it's kind of hard to pinpoint. I think uh, a thought came to mind with the acorns. So on the West Coast, a lot of the West Coast tribes out there they make acorn flour, uh, oh. and th- there's a process. Uh, I I think. If you wanted to, depending on how involved you wanted to get into that quarry, you could go that route. I mean, even something is like acorn flour fried steaks. Like I don't yeah. know, maybe it's, maybe it's the next best thing. <laughs> this will this will uh, it'll either go over really well or or be a pain in the butt. Yeah, you know. Yeah, goes good well, it's it. a pain in the butt. I made the flour before. It sucks. <laughs> But I think you can buy it. Man, my mind's spinning now because now I'm trying to think like how, how best we compare Corey's deer meat with the environment. But we can keep thinking about that. Um, I wanted to talk some about your cookbook. Yeah. So so we set out. I'm, I'm Armenian. Uh, my background, my mom was born in Egypt. Um, I was born here in the States. And... We are Armenian, and for those who don't know, Armenia is a small country that's kind of nestled in between Turkey, Georgia, Iran, um, and Azerbaijan. So it's kind of landlocked, and we're a very small country, but there was a, um, a genocide that happened, which made everybody, uh, you know, flee, more or less. And that's kind of why you have Armenians. If you if you met them, there there's there's always Armenian from somewhere. So like I would be considered Egyptian Armenian, and there's like Russian Armenians and Persian Armenians. But basically, I I grew up in a Egyptian Armenian household, knowing uh, Armenian cooking. And when I first visited Armenia, when I was man, I think I was in my early 30s it was probably six yes yeah, so i was probably six years ago first time i visited armenia i was like what is this food 
I, I didn't recognize it. I didn't know what the cuisine was. So there was a super shortage, or not a shortage, it's just a, a lack of people that knew what was being cooked in Armenia today and where the cuisine actually was. And the, everybody re- researched, or not researched, everybody had this one cookbook that they would kind of go off of, which was called the Complete Armenian Cookbook. And it was written like 40 years ago by this lady. And there were recipes in there like uh, chop suey and uh, chicken tandoori. Oh, wow. And I'm yeah. like, I, it was tarragon, just, yeah. Yeah. So like, <laughs> it didn't make it. She, she just, she made, there were Armenian dishes in there, but she just picked anything that she wanted and she just stuffed it in this cookbook. So I, I partnered with um, my two co authors and we sought out to write an Armenian cookbook, basically the first of its kind. Um, we went to Armenia and we went village to village gathering recipes from the country itself. And a lot of the recipes were, were a shock to me. Um, I didn't know what majority of these things were, but, uh, it, the way Armenians are, they're very proud. So if we wrote a cookbook based off of what my mom taught me, uh, some other, you know, Persian Armenian or Russian Armenian would be like, that's not how you make that dish. And that's not how you make this dish. That's not Armenian. That's not Armenian. So I said, if we go to Armenia and we travel the country and we gather recipes straight from the country, nobody can question whether they make this there or not. Like we literally went to a village where they don't know, they've, they've never left the country. So it's not like somebody is just showing them this recipe. This is, right. this is from Online Armenia. Is opinionated, but you're actually going there and making it. Exactly. So it yeah. took us about four years to write this thing, start to finish. Um, we got a, a deal from Chronicle Books out of San Francisco. And this became the very first nationally and internationally distributed Armenian cookbook. Uh, oh, the, wow. the book is called Lavash. Which is it's it's lavash is Armenian flatbread. Uh, it's becoming more and more popular now in the states. It's it's regional from there. So all of, you know, 300 years ago there were no the borders were not the borders they are today. So everybody around there ate this bread, but it's basically this extremely wow. flat bread that's cooked in a tonier, which is an in-ground oven, uh, and it's made very simply with water and flour. Uh, and natural yeast, more or less. And it's not really leavened, and they slap it onto the walls of this in-ground oven. And it's the center of... Yeah, it's incredible. And it's the center of every Armenian table. So you literally, when you're making your barbecue, you wrap the barbecue in it. You make, you know, you... uh, They they freaking wrap babies in this stuff. You know what I mean? It's it's, (laughs) It's It's very similar to Native American... Fry bread that's done in these ovens that are on the side, you know. The, the, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's, yeah, it's very similar to that. It's amazing. It's very similar. Amazing. And it's it's we we were like we we had a we had some trouble finding the name for the book, and our agent was like, "Why don't you guys just call it Lavash because it's the center of every table?" Um, and we ended up, you know, we nailed the title down. We 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 got it all together, and the book got released oct- this past October. Uh, and it's been doing really well. It was, we went on a, a, a national tour, uh, and we had a lot more dates that were supposed to be going, um, through March. We were supposed to hit up New York and Pittsburgh and Chicago. Uh, we had some more dates in San Francisco that, that all got canceled because of this, uh, you know, pandemic. 
Oh man. Yeah. Or yeah. when if 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 things get rescheduled and you make it to Pittsburgh, let me know because I'm I'm just a couple hours from Pittsburgh. Awesome, hundred percent. I there's a I I can't remember off the top of my head, but there is an organization that wants to fly us out to do a talk and a demo and stuff out there. So I think that's definitely going to happen. It's just been postponed a little bit. Um, same with uh, New York and Chicago and Toronto. So it's it's kind of everything's been on a pause. Uh, this whole this we're in a holding pattern. <laughs> Us and the rest of the world, right? So right, if right. if you could if if you could describe um I guess our Armenian food sort of I don't want to do it discredit by like shortening it but just no. like a good description. So Armenian food from Armenia. Now there's a there's a distinguished you have to distinguish western and eastern Armenia. They they consider Armenia the country to be eastern Armenian. Um so there's a difference there but uh in a whole it's a lot of greens. It's a lot of grains. Um, every every meal is is fit with a bouquet of herbs. Let's say that. So, like, I mean, it's not uncommon to go to the grocery store, and what they do is they sell, uh, like, imagine a bouquet of flowers, but it's all herbs: uh, purple basil, dill, thyme, cilantro, uh, parsley, and in every dish. They more or less take this, chop that up into bits, and they throw it on everything. So there's a lot of herbs. There's a lot of greens and grains. There's cheeses. Uh, the barbecue is, 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 a, is a staple. So it's a lot of pork and a lot of beef. Not so much lamb. Lamb is more of a Western Armenian thing. And lamb, the reason why Armenians in Armenia, they don't eat lamb as much is because they're, lamb, they're, they're sheep herders. And they sell their sheep, so it's kind of like eating your own stuff. You know what I mean? Like you're you're mm-hmm. you're eating your profits. So they eat a lot. There's a lot of pork, a lot of beef, and what they do is they barbecue on these open flames where the the meat is skewered. So I'm like, yeah, and lamb tarragon, but that's that's not traditionally Armenian food. It's so there there is there is lamb, but they don't eat it as much as they eat beef and pork okay. more nice. pork good than know. anything good to know though yeah yeah more pork than anything it's it's a um they eat very balanced in armenia it's it's a lot more uh they do a lot of foraging so it's not uncommon to be like driving down and seeing somebody just picking trees like i mean out here it's it's if you're driving in la we have a lot of armenians out here and the armenians are the ones that are like picking all the fruits and stuff on the trees, you know, around everywhere. <laughs> if you had to pick one Armenian dish that you could eat for the rest of your life, only one, what would it be? So this, this, this is, and it, this one's in the book, and um, it's more of a Western Armenian dish. It's called chikefte, and it is basically uh, beef tartare. It's, Ooh, it's okay. raw, it's raw. Yeah beef that's ground extremely lean mixed with crack wheat uh pepper paste and some spices and minced onions and it's just served raw and cold and like i can since i was a little kid i used to walk around calling people chikeftes like that was my that that can go for venison too right 
A hundred percent. So I, I did, uh, I did a, I did a uh, venison carpaccio dish, and now mm-hmm. I, I, I want to do a venison chikafta dish, because it just, it needs to be extremely lean. Like, I mean, you, you basically use eye of round um, with beef, oh, yeah. and then you, you base, you mince it until it's a puree. More, it's not so much ground beef. There aren't chunks in it. It's smooth. It's like paste, and then you mix that with crack wheat. The crack wheat hydrates inside of the meat. And then you mix that with the spices and like uh, minced onions, and it's that's a phenomenal dish. That's like that is oh, my good. Sounds dude. magical. Yeah, that is my dish. Yeah, good, Justin. You did you did a carpaccio recipe recently, didn't you? Nope, Ara did it. That was me. Oh, that was you. Yeah, okay, yeah. Okay, I saw that. <laughs> if okay. I can eat it raw, I eat it raw. Like that's that's my thing. Like I as much as like I'm a chef and I like cooking things. I eat a lot of sushi. I eat a lot of raw food. Like I just, I want to eat my meat raw. I want to eat my fish raw. I just want to eat it all raw. So, uh, what's the easiest way for people to get a hold of your book? It's the book is sold everywhere that books are sold. Uh, so literally, I mean, you go to Target and buy at Barnes and Nobles. But the easiest, easiest way is Amazon. Um, as much as you know, all the bookstores and the book world hates it. It's the simplest and easiest way. And do you guys have uh, social media and website? Yeah. So you can, if you go to lavashthebook.com or on Instagram, it's at lavashthebook. That's all the book content. Um, we have the Facebook presence as well, lavashthebook. Everything has become lavashthebook, but the book is just called lavash. <laughs> like we never <laughs> Yeah. All right. So uh, if people want to get a hold of your book... Amazon's best bet. You're on all the social media channels. Lavash, the book is the best way. Yeah. Um, so let's let's uh, dive maybe a little bit back into the hunting world. Yeah. As we start to wrap things up, Corey, you got some questions? And when I I don't look at Southern California as the epicenter of hunting, but being living there, how how did you get <laughs> how did you get into hunting since you you weren't you weren't uh, raised in a hunting family. So that's a good question. I, um, I got my first shotgun when I was 18 and I had some friends that were bird hunting and I was like, that'll be fun. You know, I'll, uh, I'll get a shotgun. I'll get my hunting license and we'll go bird hunting. And we went bird hunting like a few times, but it was more fishing that I was into. Um, we would go, we'd rent charters. My buddy had a, a fishing boat and we would constantly go out and I was doing a lot of fishing and it wasn't until I, I shot my first bow that it's, it reignited, um, everything that I wanted to do with hunting. So I went to an archery store and shot a bow. And then the next day I owned the bow and then I would start practicing a lot. <laughs> and then and then my buddies were like, hey, we're going bird hunting. So I went and I bought a new shotgun. And then we went bird hunting. And then I just started massively researching everything about archery and archery hunting. And like just dove in headfirst. Uh, and that's, that's kind of what it was. I had just some friends that kind of grew up doing it. And they kind of inspired me you know, to do it. And then I just took that and hit the ground running. It was, you know, being a, a chef and having a love for food, that kind of drive you to it as well? I Yes. I mean, it's, 
there's there was definitely this this whole thing of you know if I have this bow now I, I can just kill my own food and then I can start from the beginning and and it's it's like it just it brought it full circle in my mind and it added to the whole allure of hunting and the whole excitement of having to practice my bow to be able to you know understand respect and take a life and be able to kill it to be able to eat that as well and bring it to my family it just it made it, it just made sense in my head it made everything kind of come together full circle everything that i've done everything that i kind of preach about eating well and good food and providing for your family it just made everything make sense yeah you and i started contributing to harvesting nature about the same time but i think we came from the the exact opposite ends of the spectrum you from a, a food and then find finding hunting you know coming to harvesting nature and then you know i grew up mm-hmm. in a hunting family and you know loved hunting and fishing with my dad and um and but he was not much of a cook you know it was it was my grandmother that was the cook and so i didn't you know i didn't learn a whole lot of how to cook the wild game that i that i harvested when when i was younger and I wanted to learn more, and then that's what. So it's it's just kind of funny how we came from total opposite ends, but two you know, different areas. Right yeah, the, yeah, met right in the middle. I love it. I love it. It's it brings hunting. Honestly, brings so many different people together. It's it's been a joy and a pleasure just to hang out with people that kind of event. You, it doesn't matter what walk of life you come from. It kind of you. Everyone has the same goal, and it's it's it brings people together that you wouldn't even know. That's. I think that's... I met when I lived in Southern California, I met more hunters in Southern California just in like offshoot moments and, and became more engaged with them than I have. I think probably anywhere else. Like you, you meet people in passing, but in Southern California is such like a select group or, yeah. you know, a, uh, a, a niche group that you're like, Hey, yeah, there's only like two of us that I've ever met. Let's be friends yeah, forever. Exactly. So... That's exactly what it's like. <laughs> That's exactly what it's like. So now you started the hunting tradition and, and I know you said you have a son and a daughter. So I'm um, have, have yeah. you started introducing them to, to acquiring their own food? One, one hundred percent. So, so all the food that I bring home, I make sure they know. Um, I reiterate the fact of where I got it from, and I mean, I have a, a, a my kid's school probably hates me because whenever he sees deer now, he says that's yummy. <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't fly over really well in L.A. But um, he he has an appreciation. My son has appreciation. My my daughter, she's a little young for it. But I just introduced the bow to him. I bought him a, uh, a a small bow, and he's already asking when he can go hunting with me. Um, he's been practicing a lot, so we we go out there. I shoot my bow. He we put up his target. He shoots. I'm just instilling these these little steps into him, so he knows what it takes. Uh, not just. I mean, every little kid I feels I feel like will be like, I want to go hunt, and they just don't understand the scope of it. So I, I try to instill these things into him, but I've definitely I bought I even bought my daughter a little uh, a bow with like a little suction cup on the front of it, so she actually shoots that as well. <laughs> nice, that's awesome. I think those little subtle subtle steps are like 
key to to introduction. I did the same with my daughter. Like, all right, here's your first bow. Here's your first set of camouflage. Yeah. Like, yeah. Let's go out. Yeah. Um, it's it's awesome. Good steps. I love it. Yeah, we. Uh, I have a group of friends here, and we all have kids about the same age. Um, my daughter's almost eight now, but it's been a tradition the last you know four or five years. Uh, we uh, take all the kids out and go squirrel hunting, and then after our hunt, we have you know either depending on what time of day we go hunting, dinner or a nice big breakfast, and you know I look forward to that hunt every year. I love it. It's great. I love that. I love that. All right, cool. Cool. Uh, let's do a quick, uh, quick around the way here. Um, Dustin, do you have any last thoughts for us? I do not. It was really good talking to you. Had a great awesome, time. Man. Thank that was you. good, man. Thank you. Awesome. Corey, last thoughts? I, I know working or working with Ara with uh, like Taste of the Wild uh, out for outdoor news and uh, Harvesting Nature. You know. I, I'd always be one of the first ones to see his new recipes come through before putting them on the the website. It was always uh, exciting to get those emails, seeing what what he came up with. So, thank you, thank you. It's exciting to do it. Uh, it's it, it, honestly, it's a little joy. Like sometimes I like surprising myself. I'm like, whoa, okay, that's kind of fun. <laughs> it's definitely a fun thing to do. I uh, as as we were looking through, and I've you know seen the recipes come through over the time, and I, I agree with Corey. I'll, uh, your recipes are really awesome. Um, they're a deviation from the standard, and I appreciate that because it adds like a little a little gourmet like flair to it. I love which it. Uh, which they're is also good. Friendly for newbies. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, thank. That's awesome. That's good to hear. It's good to hear. Thank you. I appreciate so, it. We'll we'll have to uh we'll have to hop on another time and talk more like in depth of the recipes, but yeah. just to give kind of everybody an idea. So, uh, spinach stuffed wild boar loin with arugula, pistachio pesto, venison ricotta meatballs, and Alfredo tagliatelle, dove and bacon popper with heirloom tomato chutney, yellowtail mango habanero ceviche. Like these 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 are great recipes. Like quality stuff, as always, you can find the the recipe links in the show notes. But um, Ara, do you have any uh, any last thoughts or comments for us? No, man, it's been great talking to you guys. Uh, had a great time. Let's do it again. I love this. Yeah, absolutely, man. It was great having you on. Uh, appreciate you taking the time out. Um, thanks for your contributions over the years, and and hope we continue to the uh, the relationship and friendships that we've had and and i'm really looking forward to uh to see what's coming and uh awesome gonna get, guys thanks gonna get down into the cookbook here here pretty soon yeah uh, i recommend everybody else go out and uh pick it up and go follow uh them on social media also too go uh check out harvest and nature facebook instagram all your social media channels Go give us a, a review on um, whatever podcast platform you're listening to. Let us know what we're doing wrong, what we're doing right. If you have any ideas for us, any guests you think we should be chatting with or uh, topics we should be covering, we're open to those. we got an email address, too, as well. You can hit us up at. But uh, thank you, everybody, and uh, have a good night.
miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. A mule there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.